morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. As listeners of our show know, and now if you're a first-time listener, we'll learn. Each and every week, I have the pleasure of unpacking the parasha, the weekly reading from the five books of Moses known as the Torah, with a guest darshan, with a guest who has an interest and skill in helping us uh, figure out the meaning behind the literal text. This week, we continue our reading from the book of Shemot, the second book of Torah known in English as Exodus, and our parasha is called Yitro, one of the few Torah portions uh, named after an individual, which perhaps we'll discuss with our guest. The Torah portion begins in chapter 18 of Exodus and continues through chapter 20. And the stories of this parasha are essential to all monotheistic faiths. But it begins with Moses' uh, father-in-law, Jethro, or Yitro in Hebrew, hearing of the great miracles which God performed for the people of Israel. And he comes from Midian, where he is the priest of Midian, to the Israelites' camp. He brings with him Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two sons. Jethro advises Moses to appoint a hierarchy of magistrate and judges to assist him in the task of governing and administrating to justice to the people of Israel. Now comes that section which you may know of, either from reading the text or from the variety of movies. The children of Israel camp opposite Mount Sinai, where they are told that God has chosen them to be his kingdom of priests, Mamlechat Kohanim, and holy nation, Am Kedushah. The people respond by proclaiming all that God has spoken, we shall do, Na'asev Nishma. On the sixth day of the third month, third Hebrew month known as Sivan, seven weeks after the Exodus, the entire nation of Israel assembles at the foot of Mount Sinai for the revelation. God descends on the mountain, admits thunder, lightning, billows of smoke, and the blast of the shofar, and summons Moses to ascend. Then God proclaims the Aserata Dibrot. Uh, in English, we usually translate that as Ten Commandments, but that's not the intention of the Hebrew. Commanding the people to believe in God, not to worship idols, to not use God's name as a guarantor of an oath, to keep Shabbat, honor their parents, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness, and not to covet another's property. The people cry out to Moses that the revelation is too intense for them to bear, begging him to receive Torah from God and convey it to them rather than a direct transmission. As I indicated at the beginning, most listeners are familiar in some manner or form with the revelation, um, but perhaps not with the beginning uh, part of our parasha. With me this morning is Rabbi Simcha Bob, who is the Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Lombard, Illinois. He serves guest as a guest faculty at Wheaton College 
and as an adjunct professor at Elmhurst University. He's the author of two books regarding the book of Jonah, Go to Nineveh, Medieval Jewish Commentaries on the Book of Jonah, Translated and Explained, and a second book, Jonah and the Meaning of Our Lives, a verse-by-verse contemporary commentary. It's a pleasure to welcome again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Simcha Bob. Good morning. It's good to be with you again and good to be part of this ongoing conversation about the Bible and trying to look more carefully at parts that we often skip over to get to the good parts. <laughs> and and that is uh, what we want to uh, help our uh, listeners understand, because the Torah portion begins um, with Moses and his father, the priest of Midian, uh, who's called Jethro in English and Yitro in Hebrew, uh, having a conversation. But before we um, go to the conversation, um, perhaps you can offer our listeners uh, your understanding of why this Midianite priest uh, has a Torah portion named after him. We don't have a Torah portion called Moses or Aaron or Joshua um, or any of the five-star athletes of the books. Um, why this Midianite priest? So the names of the Torah portion often don't really describe the content of the Torah portion. The Torah portions aren't named like Western books are named. Usually they're named based on the first significant word in the Torah portion. So Jethro's name occurs in the first verse of the Torah portion. That's why he gets the honor of having it named for him. He's also, he's an unusual figure in the Hebrew Bible. That most of the people in the Hebrew Bible are either Israelites or enemies of the Israelites. <laughs> people who people around to cause problems or members of the people. Jethro is a, I think, a unique figure in that he's clearly identified as a Midianite. We met him earlier in the text when Moses fled from Egypt and he became a shepherd working for Jethro. And then he married the boss's daughter. Uh, it's not an, it's not a unique story, but it, it may be the oldest version of a story. Um, so we learn early on that Moses is good at taking care of Jethro's sheep, which may be a hint at his career to come, that he's the shepherd of Jethro's sheep, and then he becomes the shepherd of the people of Israel. That's a nice comparison, um, in as much as um, the heroes in the book of Genesis are really never identified as shepherds. And so uh, the unique role that Moses has is um, distinguished immediately by his first uh, job. That's right. Now, if, if you were to ask, who is my shepherd? Probably the most famous biblical text tells us. The Lord is my shepherd. Anybody who knows it. Psalm 23, for those who didn't uh, immediately resonate with the Jeopardy-like question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ken, I'll take Bible for 400. Um, this image of shepherd is helpful in the time in which the Bible is set. I mean, you know, in a serious way, few of us are actually engaged in the, the business venture of taking care of sheep these days. 
But in that time, it was a major profession in that part of the world. So describing God as a shepherd of humanity or describing Moses as a shepherd of the people of Israel is a, is a stronger image than perhaps it is for us today. Good. And so um, Jethro is introduced to us as uh, traveling from Midian. Um, and as I indicated in my summary, at first glance, it, he simply uh, appears to be a transporter of wife and grandchildren. But very quickly, um, that role changes. And perhaps you can help the listeners understand uh, the context for what's now going to take place, a fairly significant conversation. Right. So first, Jethro hears the story of the redemption from slavery in Egypt. He hears the story of the ten plagues, the dividing of the sea, and he's impressed. He becomes, um, let's say, a believer in the one God. He offers sacrifices to the one God, even though he's a Midianite priest. So he gets to be an outside observer who comes in and is taken up by the story. Then, to get to the heart of the matter we're talking about today, he watches his son-in-law at work. Now, the important thing here in giving advice is, first, he watches Moses at work. He doesn't give advice before he observes. Sometimes people are willing to give us advice about anything, even things about which they know nothing. <laughs> you know, one of the challenges for us as rabbis or as parents or as friends or as spouses is to give advice in a way in which it will be effective. Generally, I think that I shouldn't give advice until I'm asked for it. Now, Moses does not exactly ask Jethro for advice, but Jethro watches what Moses is doing. Let me read for the listeners this part of the text. Great, thank you. Um, and it came to pass on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law, uh, who we know to be Jethro, saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing? Why sittest by yourself? Why are you doing this all by yourself? All the people stand about there from the morning until the evening. And Moses said, um, I do this because the people come unto me to inquire of God, Lidrosh um, Elohim, to find some sort of um, questioning and answering. And when they have a matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his, uh, and his neighbor, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Um, and Jethro says to him, Wait, wait, wait. Let's talk about the question before you talk about the answer. Okay, good. So, so the question is, what are you doing? Right. So first of all, the text says that, that Jethro saw. The Jethro sat, sat and observed before he offered his opinion. And then he doesn't offer his opinion right away. First, he asks Moses, what are you doing? He lets Moses describe what's going on rather than telling Moses what's going on. So I think this is an interesting way or it can guide us in terms of how we ask advice, how we give advice. First, we have to ask. 
we can ask the person to explain to us what is happening. Now, I'm not going to come today and tell you how to run your podcast. <laughs> I'm the guest. But even if I had an idea, I would let you explain it to me first before I would start making suggestions. So here, Jethro is coming from the outside. He's watching what Moses is doing. He clearly sees it's not the right way to go about doing it, but he asks Moses to explain it. Then after Moses explains it, then Jethro can share the flaw in the, in the current, in the first Moses approach to how to do the job. It's, it's one of the earliest examples of active listening. Yes. <laughs> I think right. that's what we would call it. And it's a paradigm for how do you engage someone uh, in a way that uh, potentially allows them to be a participant in a conversation for which you may have some wisdom to uh, share, but you'd like them to be open to hearing that wisdom. Right. <clears throat> when I was a beginning assistant rabbi, fresh out of the Hebrew Union College, I would sit with my senior colleague. I was an assistant rabbi. He was the senior rabbi. He was 25, 30 years older than me, lots of experience. And we would sit to plan some activity or a service for the congregation. And he would always ask me what I thought we should do. Now, he clearly had ideas about what we should do. He'd been doing it for decades. But he would ask me first and let me explain myself. Now, he'd never want to say, you're wrong. But he would then ask me more questions. And as he asked me questions, <laughs> the gaps in my knowledge would become visible. And then he would fill in the gaps. Great. But he, he, made it, he made it a conversation rather than just giving orders. And so we see that between Jethro and uh, Moses. And it's an interesting vehicle that the Torah uses um, for what its ultimate goal is. Moses has the reflection off his father-in-law. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than somehow there being a crisis that leads to self-reflection or that God gives him the answer um, or that there's another rebellion of people who've waited in line from morning till evening and are, are frustrated, uh, like anybody who's had to deal with the government and waits morning through evening and then loses their temper and usually then loses their place in line. Yes, recently I got to renew my driver's license. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know how, what the process is like in Canada, but I imagine there's some obstacles to this. Absolutely. Um, so we have this Midianite priest who, as you so um, helpfully identified, is introduced as a Midianite priest, but then he seems to have a relationship um, after hearing of God's miraculous intervention in Egypt. Um, we wouldn't call him a convert, but he certainly becomes a, um, an acolyte. Yes, a, a pre he appreciates. Right. Yes, there is a whole conversation here about how we look at people who have a religion other than our own. And so how they can appreciate... Uh, some other faith, right? Uh, yes, without uh, leaving their own, 
Right, right. Um, I teach at Wheaton College's Evangelical Christian School. Everyone understands I'm the rabbi on campus. <laughs> no one expects me to be a Christian. I understand they're not Jewish, but we can have a respectful conversation. I can have a respectful conversation with the students, with the faculty, with the administration. And I stand close to where they stand, and I can appreciate what they stand for, but there's some issues in which we disagree. But we can disagree with respect and kindness. So now Jethro has had this conversation with Moses. Moses has offered his um, take on what's happening. He hasn't identified it as a problem. He simply is answering the question. Right. So Moses, then- what are you doing? This is what I'm doing. And Jethro then says what? So Jethro says to him, the thing you're doing is not right. And then I love how he puts it. You will surely wear yourself out and these people as well. So he's telling Moses that the current system isn't good for Moses and it isn't good for the people. And that the new system that Jethro is going to suggest will be better for Moses and be better for the people. Now, this is a wonderful solution when it's better for the person you're advising and better for the people who look to him as a leader. So Jethro says, the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I love this. Now, listen to me. <laughs> it sounds very current. We can imagine ourselves using this language. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring disputes before God. Enjoy it upon them the laws and the teachings, and make known to them the way they are to go and the practice you are to follow. You shall seek out from all the people's capable individuals who fear God, trustworthy ones, who spurn ill-gotten gain, nobody who's on the take, um, <laughs> nobody who wants to be a leader for the financial gain, but people who want to do it because they're devoted to God, set these over as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all time. Have them bring every, every major dispute to you, but let them despite them, decide the minor disputes among themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burdens with you. So it is it is a situation in which he's going to make people who are captains of tens, and then a layer over them, and a layer over them, and a layer over them. So it's the first bureaucracy. Well, I live in the Chicago metropolitan area. For a few years, we lived in the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago famously had a political machine with block captains and precinct captains and ward bosses. Um, so I do think of this as the Mayor Daily School of Social Organization. <laughs> but it is, it's, a, it's much more effective that, to have somebody who's the, leading the small group and then someone leading a medium-sized group and someone leading a larger group. And you can divide the responsibilities. And even kidding around, when I lived in the city of Chicago, I knew if I had a problem with the city services, I could call my precinct captain. And my precinct captain would take care of the garbage pickup. Right. I didn't have to call an anonymous voice downtown. There was somebody locally who I could talk to who knew me and who wanted to look out after my welfare. I'm struck by uh, two things. One, the organizational structure. Um, and however we understand the origins of Torah, it seems like a very sophisticated system. Um, and I often wonder in reading this, um, it doesn't reflect an Egyptian structure. 
And I would bet it doesn't reflect the Midianite structure. Um, so in a cultural way, I'm wondering what structure um, this reflects. I would say, first of all, it reflects a sensible structure, <laughs> and a natural structure, and a functioning structure. You know, that um, within any large organization, whether it's a congregation or a political organization or a community organization, it functions well when you can part of a small group. You know, I know when um, I work with teens who are about to start high school. I always suggest to them, you have to find your place in the high school. I went to a very large high school. There was uh, almost 800 students in my, my grade level. So there was like 2,400 students in the high school. So that seems like a huge number. But on the high school, I was part of the school paper, and I was part of the debate team. You know, other people were, were, had found their spot in sports. And there were a few people who had a hard time finding their place. And the high school experience became a difficult, more difficult experience when they didn't have a subgroup to be part of. And some people were in the chorus and some people were in the band. All sorts of places to find yourself when you don't have a subspot to be in in a large organization. It becomes difficult. Um, I mean, it's a reality of social dynamics. Um, and as you've suggested, whether it's in a church or a congregation or a mosque or even a political structure, uh, you know, we're, regardless of where we are, we have um, um, city and local government, uh, which supposedly we have a closer connection to than um, a state or provincial government. And our representatives at the local level serve fewer people than our representatives at the state level or at the national level. Um, and so this uh, is an organizational structure that allows the individual to have a role. Uh, but then there is this wonderful answer from Jethro. If you do this thing, and then I'm going to ask you whether this is a statement or a question, and God commands you to do so, then you shall be able to endure and this people shall go to their place in peace. So that second clause, right? If you do this thing, the tzivcha Elohim. So did God command you to do this? Or if after you've done this, God commands you to do this? But it's an amazing phrase. <clears throat> I mean, Jethro is, it seems that Jethro is presenting himself as a prophet. Aha. That my words are God's words. Or Jethro is presenting himself as, this is so sensible, God is certainly going to agree with this. <laughs> um, yes, because th this phrase, the Siv Ha Elohim, and God commands you thusly. Right. It's, it becomes God's command. Right. So certainly God wants you to act in a sensible way. This is a sensible way. This certainly is what God wants you to do. You know, um, every time I read this parasha, just these few verses, I guess it's about 10 verses or thereabouts before we enter into the Revelation story. Right. Um, it amazes me that the Revelation, the preeminent episode in the entirety of Torah, 
right. is preceded by this conversation between God's representative and a representative of the nations of the world. Yes. And Jethro, the representative of the nations of the world, I mean, at this point, the Midianites are significant because of uh, familial relationships and um, the burning bush seems to have taken place. Uh, the episode of the burning bush on Midianite land. He's the one, Jethro is the one who introduces the notion of God commands you to behave in certain ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Jethro is a fascinating character. And at the end of the story, he leaves. He, does, he, he doesn't stick around and go on with them to the land of Israel. He doesn't spend 40 years in the wilderness. The story concludes. Moses bade his father well farewell, and he went on his way to his own land. Jethro goes home. Right. It's, um, it's not an uncommon motif. Joseph is wandering looking for his brothers, and an unknown person shows up in the middle of the narrative um, and says, go this way. Right. So there, there's people who seem to be sitting around off stage, <laughs> and God taps them on the shoulder. <laughs> Jethro, you're on. <clears throat> and Jethro comes on stage for his part, and then the director waves at him and he leaves. I think it's a great image. You know, we often talk about the antiphonal choir in Greek um, uh, plays, in Greek drama, that somehow this choir um, is going to uh, take the role of a narrator uh, and help the play move forward. And here, Jethro. Uh, truly allows Moses to make the transformation to the leader of the Israelite people who can do things expeditiously and who perhaps um, is the transition when the people say, this uh, revelation is too much for us. Moses, you have to be the interlocutor for us. Maybe this episode brings the people close enough to Moses that they trust him to bring them God's revelation. And Moses now has a staff to support him. Right. And will support um, the Israelites through their journey in a way that um, certainly didn't exist when they were in Egypt um, and certainly didn't exist when we were speaking about uh, the familial setup of leadership in the book of Genesis. Right, so there's a transition here from being a family to being a to being slaves, and then to being a people. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Simcha Bob, uh, the Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation in Lombard, Illinois. It's a pleasure to learn with him, and I hope it's been a pleasure for you to learn with him. And here is insights in this of this week's Torah portion. You can hear our conversation at CHRI 99.1 FM, or you can hear it as a podcast on the CHRI.ca website, or you wherever you download your favorite podcast, you can hear our conversation. Simply look for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Again, thank you to Rabbi Simcha Bob. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten from Ottawa, Canada, wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.